From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As the year comes to an end, we remember notable Coloradans we lost in 2022. Madeleine Albright moved to Denver as a kid when her father, a diplomat and professor, landed a teaching job. I grew up with the concept of foreign policy and international relations. Every time my father was interested in a subject, I would get interested in it. I was the perfect daughter. I am still the perfect daughter. Then, Carl Bourgeois helped revitalize historic neighborhoods in Denver and Colorado Springs, ones that were especially significant to people of color. Also, jazz man Ron Miles. You know, you go to school and you learn all these theories, you learn all these techniques, but in the end, you've got to let all that go when it comes time to make music. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Here at the tail end of 2022, we remember Coloradans we lost this year. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, whose Colorado connections ran deep, died of cancer in March. She was 84. This state served as a stark contrast to the Nazism and the Soviet yoke. Her family fled, leaving Czechoslovakia in 1948. Secretary Albright sat down with us, if my count and memory serve, on four separate occasions. We'll dip into some of that archive tape now, starting with her formative years here. Albright was sworn in as a U.S. citizen when she was in Colorado, went to middle school and high school in Denver. Her father, Joseph Corbell, taught at the University of Denver, and when DU named its School of International Studies after him in 2008, she came to town. Secretary, thank you for being with us. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Can you give me an example of a decision that you made as Secretary of State that was influenced by something you learned from your father? Well, there were a number of them, but I think one that was very clear was in terms of ending the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. My father really had felt that it was essential to stand up to evil and to killing of innocent people. That was the lesson that he brought with him from World War II. In addition to that, my father had been the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. And so the combination of knowing that we, the United States, all-powerful, could not stand by and watch ethnic cleansing take place in a part of the world that I knew well, I think was the one that I most felt that his spirit was kind of flying over me. How did your father teach you about foreign policy? Was it over dinner that you absorbed this? Was it more formal than that? It was constant. Some people ask me, how did I get into what I'm doing? There never was a choice. I was the oldest child. We uh, spent the war in England, and then, as I said, he was ambassador. You know, the, the little girl in the national costume who gives flowers at the airport? I used to do that for a living. And I grew up with the concept of foreign policy and international relations. Uh, Every time that my father was interested in a subject, 
I would get interested in it. I, I was the perfect daughter. I am still the perfect daughter. You are still the perfect daughter. What does that mean? Well, first of all, my father was a fantastic father in terms of a role model, and and I wanted to have him tell me that I was wonderful and that I had actually was doing what he wanted me to do. So he's been dead a long time. I'm old, but I still think about what would my father do. Your family came to Denver in 1949 so that your father could teach at DU. Uh, you attended Morey Middle School and Kent, which was a, a private girls' school at the time. I read that you actually took your oath of citizenship in Denver. I did. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And it was down at the courthouse. And when I come to Denver, I, I always somehow go by the courthouse. It was did you 19- this time? I did. I loved becoming an American. And one of the things that I did on July 4th, 2000, at Monticello, Je- Thomas Jefferson's home, I was there when we swore in a whole new group of other American citizens, and I handed them their papers. And I said to them, I have a paper just like this. It is the most valuable piece of paper you will ever have. Proving what a small world it really is, one of her father's students at the University of Denver was a woman named Condoleezza Rice, who would also become Secretary of State. In that same interview, I asked Secretary Albright if she knew Rice back then. No, I did not. My father died in 1977, and at that time he already was pretty well known in Denver, and there were lots of tributes and flowers, and among the flowers uh, was a ceramic pot in the shape of a piano with a variety of leaves in them, and I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. I later learned she had come to the University of Denver as a music major, hence the piano, and had taken a course from my father, and he persuaded her to become an international relations major. So I didn't know her until in 1987, when I was working for Michael Dukakis, uh, assembling foreign policy advisors. So I called her up and I said, you know, would you like to be an advisor to Michael Dukakis? And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father. Madeline Albright speaking with me in 2008 at the school named for her father, Joseph Corbell. That same year, Albright came to town for the Democratic National Convention. Denver played host as Barack Obama clinched his party's nomination. And Albright had brought in a global delegation to witness the process. We caught up at the Brown Palace Hotel. You know, some look cynically at conventions and say they are scripted events. We know who the nominee is. What possibly could members of an international delegation learn from an event like this? Uh, Madam Secretary, I'd like you to address that. Well, first of all, I think that it is really an exercise in American democracy. There's an awful lot that is going on at a convention. And the National Democratic Institute has, since 1984, sponsored seminars for foreign visitors to really uh, give some explanation of what they're seeing in terms of how people get to a convention, uh, what some of the polling data is about, how our democratic system works, what is going to be the view uh, of the Democratic Party on foreign policy. So it's kind of an ongoing dialogue and an explanation of what's happening. And, And I think foreign visitors enjoy seeing the diversity and spectacle of a democratic convention at its best. As she was coming up in diplomatic circles, Secretary Albright harnessed an unusual tool. 
pins, the kind you wear on your lapel. She wrote a book about them called Read My Pins, Stories from a Diplomat's Jewel Box. And in 2012, more than 200 of those pins and the stories that accompanied them landed at the Denver Art Museum. Tell us about the pin that started it all. It's a snake pin. Yes. So this is what happened. I was sent to the United Nations as our ambassador in February 1993, and it was right after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire was translated into a series of sanctions resolutions that had to be renewed all the time. And I was an instructed ambassador, and my instructions were to say perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein constantly, which he deserved. He'd invaded Kuwait. So after a while, a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I happened to have had a snake pin, and I wore it whenever we were talking about Iraq. And then I think you know when, uh, after a meeting of the Security Council, the ambassadors go out and you talk to the press, and all of a sudden somebody zeroed in on my snake pin and said, so why are you wearing that snake pin? And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. (laughs) And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out and I bought a lot of costume jewelry to reflect what I thought was going to happen on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, a lot of horrible insects and carnivorous animals. And So when the other ambassadors would say, what are we going to do today? I said, read my pins. And that's how it all started. I see. Rather than your lips, uh, which could also be read, the pins could be too. Right. And it was right after the first President Bush had actually said, read my lips, no new taxes. So people knew what I was talking about. (laughs) Was there ever a time where you thought no pin was the right message? Uh, That is not to wear one at all. Only when I forgot or when I'm exercising. But now we've kind of created a mini monster here so that when I'm not wearing a pin, it is a sign of something really awful or (laughs) just that um, I'm exercising. (laughs) What pin do you think was most photographed or or in a photograph that was most sent around the world? I think probably uh, when I wore an American flag, which I love to do, and the largest American flag I ever wore was when I went to North Korea. Because one of the things that happened, I knew that Kim Jong-il had been attacking the United States, and I knew that they would, in fact, publish a picture of me standing with him. So if I had the biggest American flag on, that would prove we were there. But I think probably my various eagles uh, were the most photographed. And when might you wear an eagle and to convey what kind of message? Well, I, uh, I had an, an eagle pin that I got when I was Secretary of State, and I think that it was usually in order to convey what I believed was the goodness of American power, of when we were involved in some way, for instance, in the Balkans, and we're trying to make sure that ethnic cleansing stopped when America was there in order to help other people. I wonder if you've ever had conversations with male ambassadors about whether they put this much thought into ties We've never actually had that kind of a conversation, but I do know that they do. Because one of the things that I think people don't fully understand is that even in a very high-level diplomatic conversation when presidents meet with other heads of state, you have to begin the conversation somehow. And so there's always, like your tie, or I'm wearing this tie because it's got your symbol on it, or something like that. So ties do become a conversation piece or, or a game opener. Do you have a favorite pin? 
Well, I do have a favorite pin, and it's a ceramic heart. And I always wear it on Valentine's Day, except now that it's in the show. But, you know, people say, where'd you get that pin? And I said, well, my daughter made it. And my daughter, she's now 45, she says, Mom, you've got to tell people I made this when I was five years old. But uh, (laughs) I love the pin. And uh, her daughter, my granddaughter, has made a little couple of paper hearts that are now a pin that that I wear instead. But I love uh, what I call Katie's heart. I wonder how many pins you own right now, or if you've lost track. I have lost track. It's really embarrassing. There are a couple of hundred pins in the show, but the thing that has happened is that people have felt sorry for me because uh, the pins that I'd been wearing all this time are now traveling around, and so they're giving me other pins, and... Uh, I call them my pity pins, and, and I do have a whole new collection. I see. Did your penchant for pins have other effects besides diplomatic messages? Well, they create a lot of holes in my suits. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I really think that in many ways I revived the costume jewelry industry. But what I also showed, I hope, to people, first of all, that foreign policy doesn't have to be so foreign because... The reason that I did the book and the show exists is that the pins that are in the show all have some kind of foreign policy story, and they allow me to talk about the anti-ballistic missile treaty or what we were doing in North Korea or our relations with France or name it, because they're just a vehicle for uh, being able to tell those kinds of stories. But I think, I hope they also showed that For not a lot of money, people can brighten their lives up and and have fun uh, looking for something at flea markets or picking up souvenirs or something like that. And of course, I have to ask about the pin you're wearing today. Well, today I actually am wearing a special pin. There is a new building in Washington, the U.S. Institute of Peace, which looks like the wings of a dove. And when I went over there, for a ceremony, they gave me this pin that actually looks like the building. And so I had a meeting over there today, and so that's what I thought I'd wear. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in 2012. My last conversation with her came in 2018, halfway through the Trump presidency. She was sounding alarm bells in a book called Fascism, A Warning. Well, first of all, let me say I would have written this book no matter who had gotten elected, because what I began to see was the fact that there were a lot of have-nots in this country as a result of technology, people who had lost their jobs and they couldn't understand why, nor was our educational system set up in a way to teach them new skills. And so that division in society was beginning then, and people wondering why the 1% had so much when a lot of people were out of work. And so I was looking at what happens when there are divisions in society, and then what happens uh, if there is a leader who kind of identifies himself with that group and then disrespects and uh, really exacerbates the differences with the others. So some of the things that I was nervous about really did come about with this election. And you see correlations, similarities, patterns to that period before World War II. I do, Mm -hmm. because some of it is that America first, blaming foreigners for things. Why would you want a bunch of immigrants who are taking the jobs? And really a disrespect for the truth. And yet, when you look at, say, the last 25 years, Democrats have held the presidency for 16. 
To what extent are they to blame for the economic picture that you're talking about? Well, I do think that um, there was a lack of attention being paid. On the other hand, um, during the Obama administration, the economic uh, situation had changed for a lot of people. But I don't think that there was enough attention paid to what you said initially, the technological advances and the displacement that took place. Madeleine Albright, in 2018, the first woman to become Secretary of State, died in March at age 84. In the hours after her death, a decades-old exchange resurfaced, which shows her legacy is a complicated one. It's an interview with Leslie Stahl of CBS News in 1996 about the impact of sanctions on Iraq. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. She later said she regretted that comment, telling Democracy Now! it was a stupid statement. I never should have made it, and if everybody else that has ever made a statement they regret would stand up, there would be a lot of people standing. Ambassador Dave Bolin, the University of Colorado's first Olympian, died last week. In 1948, Bolin finished fourth in the 400-meter track race during the London Summer Games. He went on to a career as a U.S. diplomat. That includes becoming the first black ambassador to serve behind the Iron Curtain when President Jimmy Carter appointed him ambassador to East Germany in 1977. Bolin believed his two identities as Olympic athlete and distinguished diplomat were related. Quote, I saw what sports could do for world peace and prosperity and bringing people together, Bolin told the Denver Post in 2016. There are two positions that I've had that nobody can take away from me. I'm an Olympian and I'm an ambassador. I believe I contributed a great deal to my country. This is a special Colorado Matters in memoriam from CPR News. The night her home burned in the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history, Jessica Carson of Louisville committed to rebuilding. It's been a year. (laughs) Not quite sure how we got here, but worked with a lot of great people, and the community's just been amazing. I'm Joe Wirtz from the CPR Climate Team. Since last year's devastating Marshall Fire, CPR News has looked at the cause and the damage done. After months of cleanup, the community is rebuilding. Listen to CPR News and come to CPR.org as the story continues. We are remembering some notable Coloradans who died in 2022. Joyce Meskis was a champion of the First Amendment and longtime owner of Denver's storied Tattered Cover Bookstore. She died last week at home, surrounded by her family. She was 80. Meskis bought the Tattered Cover in 1974 and ran it for more than four decades, turning it into one of the nation's most successful independent booksellers. What better way to celebrate her than to hear her read? This is from 2011, a selection she chose from Leaning Into the Wind, Women Write from the Heart of the West. Well, Leaning Into the Wind, Women Write from the Heart of the West is indeed a book of stories um, by women who have, for the most part, led very hard scrabble lives very close to the earth. Their stories um, span a century from... uh, One woman who speaks about her experience of having become pregnant as a young unmarried woman in 1925 
and the process of seeking and obtaining an abortion. Fifty years later, there is another story of a, of a woman who speaks about her travails on a ranch as she nurtures a black Angus calf born diphtheria-filled, blind, and abandoned by its mother. In between those 50 years is a short excerpt written by Viola Hayes Blair, remembering the Depression years. December of 1934 is the focus of all that I remember about the Depression. Mom and we kids were home alone while Dad had caught a ride to Montana, hoping things were better there. He was trying to sell encyclopedias and billings, and he would be home by Christmas Eve. Our only source of income was my paper route. About 25 people who worked for the Homestake Mine would pay five cents a week for the grit. And I felt pleased to be earning about 25 cents a week. I was 11, the only girl paper boy in Terraville. I remember waking up in the night and raising up when Dad got home. He had been unable to sell encyclopedias, but got a temporary job cooking pancakes in a cafe, and he earned a couple of dollars. On a snowy night, he tried to hitchhike home, but got no ride until he stood in the road and waved frantically. Long after midnight, he walked from lead through the old mine tunnel to Terraville. A few days later, he got a job at Homestake. We stayed in Terraville another year, then moved to Whitewood. Life seemed full of promise on a spring day when my sister was two years old and I was almost 14. One day in early March, my 12-year-old brother came home from school and found our mother lying dead on the floor. Having money or not having money, has never seemed important to me since that day. Joyce Meskis, longtime owner of the Tattered Cover Bookstore, reading from Leaning into the Wind, Women Write from the Heart of the West. That was part of an event called Words to Stir the Soul, hosted by the Center of the American West in 2011. Joyce Meskis died last week at age 80. Carl Bourgeois was known as a visionary, someone committed to community, and just a nice guy. Bourgeois died in July at age 71 of heart disease. He'd worked to revitalize historic neighborhoods in Denver and Colorado Springs, ones that were especially significant to people of color. My co-host, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield, spoke with former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb about Bourgeois' legacy. The older you get, the longer you live, you come across a lot of different people in life. And some of them you uh, know kindly, some of them you prefer not to meet again, and some others that you haven't had much contact with. But Carl Bourgeois, he would fall in the category of what I refer to as just being a good man. Carl was thoughtful, he was kind, and he always gave back to the community. He used his talents, his uh, academic talents of being a banker and, and being a finance geek, to uh, say, I want to do something 
more than that. I want to give back. Uh, he moved to Denver, and one of the first things he undertook was seeing Five Points in particular as a gym that had never been reached its full maturity of what it can be. Carl began purchasing several uh, buildings in the uh, Five Points area, developing them, uh, moving in the Five Points area himself, demonstrating that specifically Black people can move in an area that uh, that many people have shunned in the past. He gave back to the community before it was ever popular. Carl was one of the first to say, I'm going to develop these properties, I'm going to buy these properties, and I'm going to keep them here for the community as a whole. So it maintains Black ownership. Can you share with us, uh, does any story come to mind that you think kind of epitomizes Carl and what he was like and what he was about? Well, I would think of what his last project is that he undertook. And that was to return to the town of his birth, Colorado Springs, and say, I'm going to redevelop this area where most of the black people in Colorado Springs lived and the area where he grew up, the area that uh, where his mother raised their family and said, I'm going to purchase this house and I'm going to purchase the house where the wealthier white people lived and I'm going to purchase our family's home. And uh, we're going to redevelop this property and turn it into a retreat center and a conference center so that... Uh, Future generations in, in, in Colorado Springs specific will say that Carl Bourgeois say this from the wrecking ball. And what he did was save it for not only his children's generation, but also future generations to come. Former Denver Mayor Wellington Webb speaking with my colleague Chandra Thomas Whitfield about Carl Bourgeois. Bourgeois died in July of heart disease at age 71. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters in Memoriam continues into the next half hour on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We are dedicating today's show to some of the notable Coloradans who passed away in 2022. World-renowned extreme skier and mountaineer Hillary Nelson died skiing down from a summit in Nepal in September. Nelson lived in Telluride in her beloved Rocky Mountains. She was featured in the PBS documentary series Kingdoms of the Sky in 2018. I mean, all mountains have a moodiness to them, have a personality, but the Rockies, the Rockies might take the cake. They're steep mountains, they're rugged. It keeps you on your toes. I think I could spend 10 lifetimes here and probably not do everything I would like to do in these mountains. My colleague Nathan Heffel spoke with Hillary Nelson when that documentary was released about the call of the mountains and the danger that comes along with. We just heard you say all mountains have a personality, a moodiness, but the Rockies, 
might take the cake. Why is that? Well, I think I'm the most familiar with the Rockies, so I see all their moods for better and for worse. It's super unpredictable, and it's uh, um, like that with uh, the snow. You know, there's plenty of times I've been caught in thunderstorms in these mountains when I'm skiing, even in the winter. Plenty of times that you start out on a beautiful sunny day and it ends in a windy blizzard and you just kind of have to be prepared for everything. Well, in this special that you filmed, uh, there's a section where you were trying to attack a particularly difficult mountain, which is part of the San Juan Range. And I want to give listeners a sense of what you're up against. So here's a clip from that. In the heart of the San Juan Range, Mount Sneffels is the highest peak for miles. At just 20 million years old, it's one of the youngest mountains in the Rockies and still growing fast. At over 14,000 feet high, the air is 40% thinner at the summit and the winds can blow over 100 miles per hour. But Hillary is determined to attempt it. What gives you that desire? What gives you that passion to go to places that are so extreme, that are so dangerous, and that could potentially do you significant harm? Well, I think it's all part of a a philosophy of um, exploring myself and getting to know who I am and more often than not, I'm, I'm climbing these peaks with other people in a team. And the human dynamic is fascinating to me. And the way you connect with people through adversity is very unique. And uh, I hold it very dear. <laughs> and I um, think that with all the distractions we have just moving through day-to-day life in the Western world, you don't often have those human connections. And we definitely don't have those sort of rugged connections with Mother Nature and the outside as well. And so that's what I'm looking for. Uh, When you're up there, you're so connected to each piece of equipment, to each thing that that is holding you to these mountains or or the skis that you use when you're skiing down the mountain. I mean, you must have to be in the moment so much. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think that's actually what I love so much about it is it's a way to not be distracted, to get off that like hamster wheel that I think so many people have going on in their heads. Me, I know for sure. Um, I'm always riding the hamster wheel around in circles. And when I'm in the mountains and I'm really focused and, and climbing something technical or skiing something really technical, and I have to be super focused on each turn and and also, you know, the, the changing weather and where I'm descending to and the avalanche conditions and all of that, it, it just raises all my senses to a very heightened feeling. And it's, it's amazing. You're really focused in the moment and that those distractions go away. What is your relationship with fear? I know you were the first woman to climb two 8,000 meter peaks in 24 hours, one of them being Mount Everest. Yeah. I mean, clearly you relish what you do, but, but there has to be this element of fear there, I would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of look at fear as sort of another tool similar to my skis or my ice axes or crampons, you know, and I 
I think fear, I think we all need a little fear in our life because if you don't have it, then you're not really overcoming anything, right? So um, yes, I definitely get afraid and I have fear a lot. And really it's about managing it and knowing how far I can push myself before that fear sort of spills over into panic because panic is really bad. Fear is is healthy, but you definitely don't want to panic. That's that's not so good. So I'm assuming you're also managing the physical pain that you go through as well as the mental fear and, and, and pain there. Right. Well, and physical pain is, I mean, again, it's sort of relative, I suppose, in terms of, you know, I've had a lot of injuries just being an athlete, my, you know, from basketball to soccer to skiing to running. And uh, I am always just curious how my body will adapt to certain situations. And I know I can adapt really well to high altitude, but at the same time, high altitude is like one of the most miserable things that you can experience physically because of the headaches and your your fingers swell and your stomach hurts and um, it's it's just super uncomfortable. But I've done it enough now that I kind of know the, the boundaries like fear, like I know the boundaries of where it's uncomfortable, but I'm still healthy and I'm okay versus it turning into like a real altitude sickness or something. Um, but um, it's like kind of the, the satisfaction afterwards is really worth it. Well, how much consideration do you give to conditions? I mean, like you've said, they can change really rapidly. I mean, are there times when you've chosen to go out in in less than ideal weather and and just hope it's going to get better? Oh yeah, I've definitely done that a lot. And then and sometimes it doesn't, and you're just like, oh, this is this isn't worth it, you know? Or you or you kind of change what your objective is on the fly because you start up something and it's just way too windy or. Um, um, that it's colder than you thought or, you know, the, or uh, another really kind of dangerous time is springtime when the snowpack heats up and it starts getting hot is, you know, it, it, it is also unique to Colorado and the Rockies is that you have these super cold nights, but then you have these temperature swings in the springtime of, you know, 50 degrees, 60 degrees sometimes. That's crazy. So you kind of, you just have to be aware of that. And, you know, I've never regretted really turning around on something. Do you learn something about yourself each and every time you, you do something like this? No matter how you best you prepare for anything, there's, there's always stuff that goes wrong. And that's where adventure comes in. And I guess that's where I kind of like to be. And that's when I learn stuff about myself. Well, I mean, well, it's no fun when everything goes right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so let's let's go there. Uh, you know, what what is maybe one of the worst decisions you've made out there, but as you said, maybe becomes a big adventure? I remember one time unroping from my partner's before we reached the top and then one of my partners walked away from our camp and fell straight into a crevasse. But fortunately we were able to, you know, get her out. But it's just that thought process of like, well, there, there really was no reason to take the rope off. We just did it because it was convenient. And, um, but you learn, fortunately I've only been in situations that, um, have been more like a wrist slap to some extent. I've walked away from those and you learn, you learn from mistakes and sometimes they're kind of more failures, but, uh, it's still, it still is part of life and, you know, you can't, you can't have the successes without the failures, I think. 
Hillary Nelson, speaking with CPR's Nathan Heffel in 2018. She lived in Telluride and died in September in a skiing accident in Nepal. This is Colorado Matters in Memoriam from CPR News. Fixing an entire education system isn't simple. It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist. I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for season two, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. A reflective show today, remembering Coloradans we lost in 2022. Jazzman Ron Miles was an internationally known trumpeter, cornetist, and composer, a music educator as well. He died in March at age 58. I most recently spoke with Miles during the 2020 Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza. We talked about his dream come true. You grew up listening to records on the Blue Note label, luminaries like John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins. Now you have a Blue Note album. It's called Rainbow Sign. How does that feel? Well, it's amazing to think at my age that I would get a chance to record for such a legendary label. I feel honored to be part of that group of musicians, and I hope that audiences will feel me a worthy uh, member of the club. Oh, do you still have some imposter syndrome, Ron Miles? I, I do have a bit of imposter syndrome. <laughs> when I look at a John Coltrane album, I, it's not even imposter syndrome. I just know I got a lot more work to do. So <laughs> I need to get to the practice room. Even having you mentioned his name, I know where I will be in a half an hour is in my practice room dealing with the music. Ron Miles was humble and thoughtful, accessible to his students at Metro State University. We sat down several times over the years, including in 2017, when he was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame and had released the album I Am a Man. That's the slogan used by striking black sanitation workers in Memphis in 1968. A little more of the background here. Martin Luther King Jr. had traveled to Memphis to support the strikers. And on April 4th, he was struck dead by an assassin's bullet. Ron Miles was just four then, but he remembers watching King's funeral on TV. And he's never forgotten the images of the striking workers and their signs proclaiming their essential humanity. I am a man. Ron, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to say that this album was just chosen by the New York Times as one of the best of 2017. I am a man. What does that phrase mean to you? How does it resonate? Well, I think it has been just a, uh, something that's resonated really through my whole life about the sense about recognizing each other's humanity. I mean, I, I'm deeply, I, th- I consider myself pretty religious. And, and you know, in the New Testament, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus shows up and says, in a way, kind of like, you guys, these 10 seem to be too much for you guys to really grapple with. So let me just have one. Th- these this, tens, these 10 commandments. Yeah. Uh-huh. Why don't we just try one? Just love everybody like I've loved you. Can we just start with that? <laughs> and then we'll go to the other stuff after that. And that I feel in this time, particularly this political climate now, where there seems to be a move to diminish another's humanity. Um and 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 a kind of cynicism about that that I, I, I find really really dangerous and 
I think we have to do everything we can to go out there and and recognize and respect each other and, and start from that common place. Can you think of a time in your life where because uh, yeah, perhaps the color of your skin, you, you felt that you were not being treated as a man? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I remember right just this comes to my mind right now i remember i would go to these camps in the summer in emporia kansas and as a kid uh, as i was in high school mm. uh the clark terry jazz camp and the first time i went it was kind of like you see both sides of it I, I didn't drive so greg gispert who's a wonderful wonderful trumpet player plays in lincoln center his dad drove greg and i out to emporia kansas in his car and it was you know we're just hanging it was so beautiful and I think I had to come home by myself, and I rode the trailways home. So the, the went, bus. The bus. And so I went to this place where they pick you up in Emporia, and I remember, like, people calling me the N-word, like it was a barrage of, I was like, I must, I must have been 17, 18, 18, I think. And then, so finally the bus shows up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And, and so I, like, get on the bus driver, and... And I'm about to get on, and the bus driver calls me the N word. It's like, oh my gosh! I just finally just slump in my seat and just take this ride home. Oh. And and so, you know, so you have those kind of moments, and um, it, it, I can look back on it and just like, man, that was was wild. And and being it's eighteen, so overt. Oh, oh my yeah, goodness! I mean, it's it was, just like, yeah, it was pretty wild. And to think, you know, you're just you know eighteen and trying to kind of factor that in. But then I had just been driven out by you know this white man and his son in the most generous way and it was so you kind of like get to see both sides of it and and you have to make a choice at that point too i mean are you gonna you have to realize that you're going to be confronted with this but you also have have had a chance to experience the other side of it quite generously so through music and through music yeah the songs on i am a man are all instrumentals so obviously no lyrics but through the music were you trying to connect the struggles of the civil rights era to today's political climate, which you have mentioned. Yeah, I think so. And also with the sense that I'm a 55, 54-year-old jazz musician. I like that you've lost uh, Yes, count. I've lost <laughs> count. I have, to, I have to go to my daughter's age and add 30 to it. So okay. that's because I'm 53. She's 23. Um, so I'm not Kendrick Lamar. I'm not these other visionaries who are young and and have their view. I've lived a different kind of life, and I've got kids their age. And so reflecting on this, not only in taking my life into account, but my kids' life and my kids' experiences, and through jazz music and instrumental music, trying to find a way to comment and be relevant in our time. Is it easier for them than it was for you? I don't know that it is easy. I hope it is easier in some ways mm-hmm. um, because I think that we always try and hopefully make the place a little bit better for those who come after us. But it's, but they have their own difficulties too. They live in this time where you can find out anything at any moment and, and it's right there at your disposal. And there's also lots of negative energy that comes in as well. It's almost like they take about when you get a computer in your house, it's almost like just opening the front door and telling your kids, just go on out, go on out there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to talk about the uh, other musicians on the new album. The guitarist is your friend and longtime collaborator, Bill Frizzell. And I should mention that the two of you were recently inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. Uh, then there's drummer Brian Blade, pianist Jason Moran, and bassist Thomas Morgan. 
Uh, this is your album. You wrote all the songs and you're the band leader, but there are long stretches where you don't play a note. called Darken My Door. And what you don't hear there is cornetist Ron Miles. Uh, that is on purpose. But what, what is it like to sort of seed this time musically over to them well, and step back? Well, for one, they're, I think they're some of the greatest musicians on the planet, so I feel I have the best seat in the house. But, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Duke Ellington's music. And there are many songs in the Duke Ellington canon where he doesn't play a single note Mm -hmm. and you know it's a Duke Ellington piece Miles Davis had pieces where he's playing organ no trumpet on it and you still you put the record it's like I think that's a Miles Davis record (laughs) and so hopefully that that sense that that your songwriting gives people a place to play and and you don't feel like it's like having a conversation it's always good sometimes just to sit and listen and see if you had anything to add and sometimes I didn't have anything at that point Why did you want to work with these particular musicians? They're my favorite musicians on the planet. It's a dream team for me. I mean, I, they're some of my favorite musicians that have ever played this music. And I, uh, Thomas was the only one who I'd never met before. Um, but Bill suggested that Thomas would be perfect, and he was exactly right. No one plays like him. This is I again a bassist, Thomas bassist, Morgan. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't have even predicted what he would play even. And the bass is so important to the foundation of a piece. Oh, yes. Yeah, so a lot is riding on that person. Mm-hmm. And and he was, at, you know, we all had moments where we had to kind of go back and fix something. And Thomas, I think, was the one person who didn't have to fix anything. <laughs> he, he played everything perfectly. I think at one point... I hate fr- people like that. I know. What, who are these people? I was like, what are you talking about? I remember uh-huh. the one point he played something and he actually asked the, the engineer, could you move that like two seconds ahead? It was a free part. And he responded to what I played. No, two seconds later. He, but he jumped on it too soon. He felt like, could you just back that up two seconds? It, it felt like I was just on it too fast. And it's like, that's all you've got. Mm. So perfect notes and and just a beautiful musician. That's actually a track called Revolutionary Congregation and Ron, you've already mentioned that you're a very religious person. What does that title mean? Well, I always like these kind of revolutionaries in, in our kind of religious history. And I think of, of even Jesus as, as a kind of revolutionary figure. And Dr. King and, and, and lots of folks who, who, who use this kind of spirituality as a way to advance causes for human rights and human dignity. And it's not just sitting in the back of the church quietly and and reverently, even though that's that's the way a lot of people express themselves, but there are people who are taking it to the powers that be 
and demanding of them that they represent what that they be what they say they are. And I think we see that a lot these days that people are let off the hook. They can say they're one way and not have to stand up. Even in this kind of sense about sexual harassment that's happening right now, it gives us a chance to decide as a society, are we are we who we say we are? Or is that just a are these just catchphrases that we can throw out that that don't have any responsibility behind them? There is a short film on your website about making this new album, and in it you say to be a part of the music you have to be comfortable with not knowing. Kind of a religious thought there too, right? Yeah. The unknown. But what do you mean by that musically, not knowing? Well, I think if you're really going to improvise, then you can't know what's going to happen because nothing's happened yet. And, you know, you go to school and you learn all these theories, you learn all these techniques, you know, this scale goes with this chord and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you've got to let all that go when it comes time to make music if you want to let the music be able to be all that it can be, because otherwise you're limiting it to your own reality. And so I want to open it up to beyond that. And so the kind of mystery of it is scary, but you have the possibility of going beyond what you know. I mean, if that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. Yeah. I want to ask you about one other song on the new album, I Am A Man. It's a lovely ballad called Mother Juggler. just want to be in the most comfortable chair in the world like next to a window listening to that I hear Bill Frizzell man when he hits that low E string it's like it's all over <laughs> the guitarist tell me about this song well um, I wrote it for my mom in, in that sense that I kind of came up in a generation where women were entering in kind of the, the workplace in mass you know I was born in 1963 and there's this kind of sense that that they carry the baggage of, of what mothers had been traditionally expected to do in the home and the stuff they were supposed to do at work. And no one cut them any slack out of any of those. It's mm. like you're supposed to go to work all day and make sure dinner was ready and do the laundry and all that kind of stuff. And if there and, was a moment's sort of infraction. Oh, yeah. Everybody was going to notice that. Uh-huh. Exactly. And, and, they, and my mom and moms like her were just doing it with like so much grace and... And now being a parent, you look back and go like, oh my gosh, I don't see how they did that. And and I always like like titles that, that were not overly, um, uh, I guess, saccharine in a way. Because I always like Parliament and like Outcast and stuff. So Mother Juggler kind of like felt like I could kind of, it had that edge that those women have too, because they're not soft. They, they got, they, there's a lot of strength in there too. So I wanted a title that reflected that. Were you proud of your mom? Oh, extremely. My greatest hero, without a doubt. Thanks for being with us. Oh, my great pleasure. Thank you for playing the music, and thank you for all you do for the music here. Colorado 
Music Hall of Famer Ron Miles, speaking with me in 2017. Miles died in March at age 58 from complications of a rare blood disorder. And that is Colorado Matters in memoriam from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. See you in 2023.